I'm your host, Stanley Collins, and this is The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and black music at the turn of the century. Philadelphia was a city with a thriving community of artists. From poets and musicians to DJs and visual artists. But even still, they were faced with a unique set of challenges. Like something as simple as finding a place to gather and be in community amongst each other. In this episode, we'll take a look at what Philadelphia was like in the 90s for these artists. And go inside the Black Lily with some of the people that made it happen. But first, to help contextualize this period in the 90s, I spoke with Denise Parker, better known as Dee River. She was the longtime host of Black Lily and a spoken word artist, as well as Stephanie Renee. She's a poet, singer, radio host, and a bunch more. And she's been instrumental in the Black arts community in Philadelphia since the 90s. Hi. Yes, this is Denise Parker, a.k.a. Dee River Parker. Uh, your lovely and benevolent hostess with the mostest from the Black Lily, the legendary Black Lily in Philadelphia. I was also producing uh, shows of my own wherever I could, you know, pop up this, pop up there, pop up everywhere. Um, that comes out of rebellion, rebelling against the city not allowing us to gather. They couldn't make it too official because the city couldn't appear to be racist. Um, and so venues, people think that, you know, Philly is all love because it's the city of brotherly love. That is not the case, as you know. Um, people think don't think that racism exists in Philly. You know, darling, <laughs> it might not be as overt as it is in the South, um, but the restrictions and the uh, being told no was overt enough. I can recall us, I started this, uh, mentioned this story a little earlier, um, us gathering from our various schools from the north um east section of the city right and northwest section of the city i went to king some people went to northeast some people went to um central um uh you know all of us that that was on that side only side of the city would meet up at only <laughs> catch the uh the train down to 11th street you know what i mean get off at the uh, i mean to 8th street um get off at the Chinese in Chinatown or whatever, if we wanted something there, or we would go straight to the gallery at 11th Street. And nine times out of 10, an hour after school, five people then turn into 25 people at the food court in the gallery. And these 25 people working, um, might be working uh, some of the stands or, or some of the stores or whatever in the gallery. Most of us are students that just got out of school and as opposed to hanging out in the streets or whatever, we're gathering together to see what what fun we can we can create together, right? And that 25 people are walking from the gallery at 11th and Market down to uh, 11th and South, and from 11th and South down to Penn's Landing, 
Now between 11th and Market and 11th and South, the closer we get to South Street, the more our, our 25 people are, are growing. Now, mind you, it looks like a parade or something damn near, you know, of kids walking down the street. And it might be a, a group of 10 here, a group of five there, a group of, you know what I mean? But we're all going in the same direction for the same goal. Nothing really set in stone. We just know that we we jam. We, we want to do a session, a cipher. We've been stopped on any given day several times by the cops. Black, white, polka dot. Well, we ain't see no polka dot. It was black and white cops back then. It was rarely you saw an Asian or a Spanish cop. You know? Now, Joe White cop, what you kids doing? Y'all about to start a riot? Black, white, polka dot mix of, of kids. No weapons. We might have had some weed. We got some, some instruments and our book sacks full of books. And everybody writes or draws or whatever full of books, bruh. Okay? We getting stopped all the time. We hit South Street, shit. We gotta get prepared to get stopped some, some more times until we get the pins landing under our dome of, of protection, or so we thought. I remember one um, uh, uh, walk to, to Penn's Landing, we all together, mind you, um, while we're coming from Alney's side, uh, Amir and them are coming from South side. You know what I mean? From Kappa side. So we all meet up on South Street. By the time we get to South Street, 25 and turned into 30, 40, 50 people. And if we don't know anybody that owns a storefront, even if we do, we've been asked to move, be moved along because the cops are moving along. Well, it's not really uh, uh, their property. They just are renting the store or whatever, city ordinance, and they would give us some bullshit. I don't know if any of us checked to see if it was a city ordinance on it or not, but we knew that it, it wasn't right. And we knew that it was because we were peaceful. And it was a lot more melanated people in the, in, you know, that comprised that mob than than others. Um, but on one occasion, I remember a black cop. Uh, we thinking we're going to get stopped and run in, and some of my cats got arrested a few times. But you know, this one time, um, uh, we were getting closer and closer to uh, the Penn's Landing. There used to be a little veranda up there with you know a, a, a dome gazebo and everything, and we would all end up there, sitting on the ground, on the concrete. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm go going in, boom. Yeah, whoever is, you know what I mean? And, and it just, the cypher is beginning. You got people break dancing and beatboxing and, and yeah, it was awesome. It, it, ah, dude, we were Crush Groove or Beat Street. Or we were all of that. <laughs> and this cop, black cop walks up on us and he's you know bobbing his head and we're like oh shit here come the man or whatever you know what I mean and mind you Els is being posted around too passed around too right and uh <laughs> I think it landed on me by the time the dude got there <laughs> I think it landed on me and and, <laughs> and everybody stopped and was like Oh shit, what are we going to do? I was like, hey, you want one? He was like, sure. And he, <laughs> I passed it to him. He took it, bro. And we just went back to, <laughs> and, you know, dancing and everything. Everything was cool. <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> You know, so, so that's why I say I, the uh, the the tough times, the rough times, have been far outweighed by the the uh, the better times or uh, the better times we made out of the tough times. You know what I'm saying? Because we had each other. 
prior to the Lily, prior to a lot of live events in Philly, <laughs> and I was a part of this too. You couldn't you couldn't find anywhere in Philly that had live music unless it was a white venue. Um, and it was a concert type of, you know, it was that large of a scale or whatever. But on a regular, small, cohesive, or or you would go to South Philly and find the, the white boys rocking or whatever, the punk rockers or whatever. That's the only time you would find live music in Philly. And it would be like a nondescript venue that somebody had to kind of rave style. You know what I'm saying? That's where raves came from because people weren't allowed to gather with with live music and then you're going to have a mix of people black white asian you know what i'm saying spanish i mean we had talking about the gallery coming up i went to martin luther king high school you know um uh reek and amir question um uh, uh black thought and then went to kappa um Let's see. Walking Bear went to what? Overbrook or something or West Philly High or something like that. Um, so you had all of us kind of scattered around. Matter of fact, I didn't even know Walking Bear at the time when I was in high school. Uh, I was I was a spoken word artist. I did know Jill Scott because I met her through another group of um, awesome dudes who had gotten together to do this weekly event called Buttermilk Worldwide. Okay. Gene Roberson, Kenny Wells, and um, Marv, right? Uh, DJ Cool Marv. I used to feature and um, like guest host with them on Buttermilk Worldwide. I was only 14 years old, okay? So they introduced me to Jill Scott because they used to do these events and they did something with, uh, Philly used to do a, a, a summer event called Unity Day. Um, I used to love me some Unity Day. Um, and, and Philly's festivals during the summer kind of like got kicked off with Unity Day, I think. Um, uh, and then you, it, it would, you know, delineate into to specific pockets of people celebrating their day on the parkway. But anyway, um, so they did Unity Day and they, they had a tent for Unity Day where uh, they were featuring uh, Jill Scott at the time had a partner and she was only doing spoken word and uh she was known as uh one half of clark and scott or scott and clark or something like that right tiffany clark i think and jill scott black lily would not have happened had these other things happened before i'm stephanie renee multi-hyphenate uh, in most things creative, I don't dance well, you know, not on the professional <laughs> side of it. Uh, but mostly at this stage, uh, I guess you could say media mogulizing, um, audiovisual production, instruction, and archivist. Uh, and I'm most popularly known right now as the vibe mistress of Soul Sanctuary Radio. Yeah. So so the problem, it, along with the beauty of this period kind of leading up to Black Lily, is that for the poets of which I consider myself or at least, you know, deeply considered myself right out of pen, um, we were going to art. Ga we were going to any place that would allow us gather and kind of workshop new things. And so that meant bookstores, that meant record stores, that meant uh, you know, um, art galleries and and all kinds of other little coffee shops, little niche spaces. And this, remember, we're talking about before Love Jones, which completely, completely changed things, and that's significant. But but in that this time, it was little um, independently owned spaces where we would most often gather to work our plan to try out what we wanted to do and and try and make it happen. And the problem was that because Philadelphia was structured to only seek the biggest margin on whatever it is they could find, one by one, the people who managed these venues 
basically started saying, nope, y'all don't drink enough. You don't eat enough. You don't buy enough, whatever it is that their main business was. And so some of these really great spaces started turning us away. At the same time, the ramping up of the talent, right? I met Jill Scott as a part of a duo, a poetic duo, Clark and Scott. And we, she was among a group of us, Ursula Rucker, uh, Wadud Ahmad, and I'm trying to think, uh, the Beatniks were also on that bill, who performed for uh, under the Books and Spoken Word tent <laughs> that was created at an annual event called Unity Day that was sponsored by WDAS, right? A million people on the parkway on a Sunday in April. I mean, you know. Who think who thinks that these things will work? But it uh, not maybe not April. Maybe it was June. It might probably was summer. Actually, probably August. But anyway, um, but you know, a million people on the Parkway on a Sunday, and that was sort of the and thank and I gotta do a special shout out to the guys of Buttermilk Worldwide because they were the ones who organized. They were all interning at DAS. They were the ones who organized. Uh, that tent they got permission to run that tent on unity day and they did the legwork to assemble all of these poets that were around kind of making a name for ourselves in one way or another and asked us to perform that afternoon and so you know even though we were all seeing each other um at these venues fairly regularly it was that moment in front of all of those people throughout the course of the day that it feels like it prompted us to that next level. I think everybody started taking it more seriously after that. And that's when these more diversified projects happened because that's when people started actually beginning to record work. And that's when that, that was sort of the over the hump um, in what Buttermilk created and what they continued to build in the city. And then how other venues started to step up their game in terms of how they presented the work. Before that, it was like, if you were a poet, then basically you did poetry. But there weren't a whole lot of people that were exercising the full scope of what they did. The Beatniks had already recorded with Greg Osby, saxophone, jazz saxophonist. So they had that credit under their belt. But everybody else, like, you know, I've always sung, Jill always sang, but she wasn't singing when she did her poetry for the most part. Maybe a little dibba-dabba here and there, but not the full scale this is what I do kind of thing. Um, and other people, it wasn't necessarily their forte, but they, other people wanted to explore some more. Rich Medina was doing poetry. He wasn't DJing on the full scale, thousands of people at a party thing at that point. He was just getting into it. He was working a, a full-time job selling pharmaceuticals le legally. You know what I mean? Like for, you know, I forget for what company, but that was his job. That was his day job. So the being pl placed on a larger platform, having a DJ as one of the people who organized the tent. So creating that vibe that this was what was happening. This is what the cool kids were doing and that they had more than you see in this one capacity. Um, kind of prompted everybody to start having a house band at poetry readings, right? To encourage the up and coming independent artists to, you know, stop through Philly and to do a set of what you're doing. Try out some stuff that you haven't previewed yet, you know, stuff that's still in progress. Um, and that really was the jump off point for a lot of other things. What's coming up next? They are at the helm of this motherfucker. Give y'all love to Mercedes Martinez, Tracy Bell, the Jersey Bad Nasties. Yeah. I'm Mercedes Martinez, one half of the Jazzy Fat Nasties. I'm Tracy Moore, the other half of Jazzy Fat Nasties. Um, we're both from Los Angeles, from California, and we lived in Philly for the best part of the 90s, <laughs> the music scene. I started uh, trying to sing in a girls group uh, in 1986. 
And it just so happened that I was invited to try out for this girls group that was forming and it was being produced by this uh, producer and manager called named Reggie Andrews, who actually used to be, um, was uh, a part of the, this band called the Dad's Band um, back in the day and made this song that still gets <laughs> airplay to this day, Let It Whip. But anyways, he was putting together this girls group and so I wound up trying out and auditioning and then the it was a four girl group called Shy in the beginning. That was um, our name. And um, he was forming this uh, sort of production sort of collective that he named SCU, South Central Unit Productions. And we were a part of that. And so were there was also the hip hop scene and the hip hop dance scene and this group that was also affiliated and started working with Reggie called, um, oh, and Reggie also started working with my younger brother who is also a producer. Both my brothers wound up getting into production, but my younger brother is um, uh, Jay Swift who did the first album for uh, the group that was also around at the time that became The Far Side. And so um, he started working with him and started working with the guys and eventually they developed their whole thing became the far side and so we had this whole little collective going on and that's sort of how we wound up meeting each the girls that would eventually become the jazzies and sort of that was the start of the whole thing right and i wasn't a part of that i um one of the other members of the group that later became the Jazzies, we, uh, her name was Dawn Backman. She, um, she, well, she uh, and I were school friends. Like we were friends, our parents knew each other. And um, our mutual friend said, hey, uh, Dawn's group, they're, you know, they're looking for another singer, you know, maybe you should go audition. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I wasn't really interested in it, um, you know, cause I had, sort of like dabbled in a group scenario and I just I was like I don't know girls uh it could get tough you know and then um but eventually she just kept asking and asking and asking so I finally was like all right I'm gonna go just so I can shut her up and then <laughs> so I go and I meet like Mercedes and Arlen who was the fourth person and um and the three of them sang for me and I remember sitting there like wow this is really special. I gotta be a part of this, you know? And in that moment, I knew that I wanted to be a part of whatever was happening with this um, group. And um, and I feel like, you know, I don't remember exactly how they, you know, they were like, oh, you're in or you're not in. I don't remember that. I'm pretty sure it was the next day <laughs> or maybe later that day we called like, she chose to sing like, I think you sang Misty or something. Yes, so she sang a jazz song and we were like, oh my God. Yeah, and we were very heavily influenced by, you know, the crew that we were hanging around with and hip hop and everything. So our whole idea was that we wanted to have enough members in order to basically be able to replicate anything that we recorded live. So that's why we were looking for an additional member so we could do those three part harmonies and have a lead. But we very much treated it like with the like approach of like a rap group where everybody has their own verse, you know, and we would all we were doing our own writing as well. Yeah, we were very much sort of influenced by that. And so we were working with my brother as well on music stuff. And eventually after he did the first Farside album, he wound up getting a development deal with Tommy Boy Records um, to, you know, have his own label through Tommy Boy Records. And so he invited us to become one of the groups on um, that he worked with. And so that's how we worked on our first album that never came out. But some do remember, <laughs> but some remember <laughs> and cherish. <laughs> ironically, right, and ironically, that album is the album that Amira had when we actually met the Roots backstage. Um, so we, the Roots were here promoting, I think, um, uh, Do You Want More? 
um, had just uh, dropped and they were doing a video here. They were, they were just here and they were, they were performing at the, um, it was called um, the Jamaica House. Um, and so we met them backstage and Amir, you know, we say, oh, we're Jelly Van and, and he pops, I have your, your, you know, your cassette. We were like, okay. Um, and he was a fan of Jay Swift and because we were on Tommy Boy, Pasta News had a copy which then he in turn gave to Amir. So that's how like our circle kind of like, oh, okay, he actually knows who we are. Um, I remember that first performance seeing them too, cause I had never heard of The Roots. Um, and I saw the performance, I saw them, you know, and I saw, you know, Black Thought on stage and I saw the live instrumentation. I was like, oh my God, this is so what we need. Like we need this in our life. Like this kind of like whatever's happening right here, we need that. And so when um, we actually connected with them and it seemed like they got us, we got them. It just all sort of magically worked and became like, okay. Um, and eventually they invited us because they were also touring Los Angeles, I mean, um, California. And they asked us to come with them for a couple of days on their bus. Remember we went to like down south, like I think we ended up San Diego. They were doing some, like a couple gigs. Like, I don't know if it was a tour or if it was just, you know, gigs they were doing in California to promote. I'm not really, I don't remember that part. And so, you know, and we met their manager, Rich Nichols, who, I mean, I immediately bonded with and thought, okay, this guy is amazing. Like, okay, you know, like brilliant dude. And um, and eventually they invited us to work on Illidale Half-Life, which is how we ended up in Philly. the east coast and you know being from the west coast and growing up here my whole life um i didn't know that i was missing something but i felt like there was you know i i didn't really i wasn't connected right and so when i got to to philly and i started meeting people and i saw the, the environment and all the architecture and, and just the beauty of that city i kind of fell in love and, and decided like well I don't know. I think I'm moving here. Like I wanted to stay. Like I never even wanted to go back to LA. I was like, okay, you know, you know, we're in our early twenties. Why not? You know. Um, so uh, when when our two weeks came up, Merce had other engagements back home, so she had it had well, to go. Basically, I was like, I never ever <laughs> thought about moving to Philly. I mean, like I had never even thought about Pennsylvania <laughs> before this. Like so. Right. And I had a boyfriend at the time, you know, so I was just like, whoa, 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 hey, wait. Back up. And I was like, I'm staying. <laughs> and, you know, by that time, what year was that? That was probably 96? That was 90, that was 96, the, the winter of 96. Right. And by that right? point, okay, so it's 1996. I'd been trying to sing in a girl group since 1986. I was like, I don't know, it hasn't really panned out yet. Maybe I should try working on some solo stuff and see, you know what I mean? It's especially when they were like, yo, we're going to move to the East Coast. So then I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to stay and, and kind of figure things out here. And so uh, that's what I did. I After the end of the two weeks, I went back home and I, you know, we were still on great terms and everything. It was just like, you know, that wasn't in my plans. And so I was here. And then after about a year, while they were um, back in Philly, Working, recording, they, working, recording, writing, uh -huh. going through the Richard Nichols like school, school of like production, <laughs> of yeah. production and writing and <laughs> and and stuff. Um, Don, one of the girls, um, called me up and was like, "Hey, are you interested in coming back? Are you, you know?" And by that point, I'd been a year of like doing it on my own, you know, working but still trying to work on some solo stuff, and I really missed 
the whole um, harmonic aspect of things. I love singing harmonies and singing live with people. And so when she um, called me up, I just jumped at the chance like, yeah, I'm ready now, you know? And so I packed up my stuff and went to Philly. But by that time, uh, Richard had been asked by them to actually manage the group. It helped us out of our, you know, we were still stuck on um, Tommy Boy. They didn't want to release us. <laughs> so we needed, we needed some, uh, some help. Yeah, and also Amir, he's like so creative and so like always has his hands in so many like different things and working with different people. And so, um, you know, after a certain point, it was like, hey, if we were going to keep this thing going, we needed to have, you know, guidance from someone, you know, to really like figure out like the real direction that we should be heading in. And so Richard uh, accepted the task um, and then proceeded to like put them through the little training camp of sorts in terms of like you know just the approach to writing and and just um sort of group collaboration and so yeah so um i was asked back uh and i came back and he kind of put me like interviewed me like to make sure like what my uh goals were and what i wanted to do and i was just like game to just come down and be a part of everything again and so yeah that's how we all kind of started back together as a foursome but you know by that point we had been get together for several years you know trying to make it and it's like really difficult we'd already been through recording an album that we thought was going to come out and you know on tommy boy but that situation didn't work out which is also stressful and then, you know, just people's personal lives, it just becomes, yeah, and life, we're all grown, you know, now. And so um, we just went through different things. And, you know, to make a long story short, we didn't actually come out with an album as the Jazzies until our numbers had whittled down to myself and Tracy. And so that is where we wind up at, um, you know, uh, the summer of, 99 um, after we had recorded our first album the once in future and we found ourselves at a point like okay what are we going to do now um the label we were signed to the roots now to the roots label to through mca which was their label at the time and while they supported the making of the record um they uh, didn't quite know what to make of us because, you know, what we were doing wasn't quite whatever was considered radio friendly at the time. It was right, right in the beginning before they were even really calling anything neo soul. So there wasn't really a category, right, category to put us in. So we were just like, okay, what are we going to do? Um, we have this little $50,000 promotion budget. Um, and that's about it for our record. And so uh, we decided, and uh, with Richard's guidance, it was really Richard's idea, instead of going and using that $50,000 to pay some musicians to go to like these five markets and do five shows, that that's it once you've done them and we'd be out of our budget, why not take that budget and actually put it into what became Black Lily and use it as a training ground, like not only to promote ourselves and our debut album, but to also provide a training ground for us. Because at that point, we'd been trying to do music and trying to be in groups, but we didn't really have any performance experience. And so prior to uh, doing, uh, trying to set up this official Black Lily, we had done these um, jam sessions at Amir's house where basically Richard would invite different musicians to come and um, different singers to come, writers to come, and just to get together and collaborate with each other. We'd jam, we would write, we would record these sessions and, you know, just kind of see what came from there. And if it was something good came out, you know, maybe we could make a song out of some of these ideas. But it was really just the 
experience of working and collaborating together live. And so we kind of took that idea of these little small jam sessions and that was sort of like the model upon which we um, it was based. So when we first started doing our jam sessions that started in Amir's house and then segued into like going to New York and we would have, we had a couple jam sessions before Black Lily, the name entity came into um, play. Um, we found that we would get there and it'd be all these like rappers jumping on and just allowing the women to just sing like a couple of lines, like a little hook here and there. And we didn't have a place to actually resonate. Like we were always pushed to the side, you know, and it was like, wait a minute, this is our thing, you know? And so I, I think Black Lily and making it something for women came from the need of having to give ourselves as women a space, because if we didn't give ourselves a space, none of the men were rushing to give us a space. It was like that kind of, you know, like really needing to like have a place where we can actually get a full thought out as opposed to being put relegated to a hook. So what we did first is like um, when we first started Black Lulu, we started it in New York um, for a year. Um, and uh, I think it was July of 99 at the wetlands, which no longer exists. But it was like a great, you know, uh, venue uh, in lower Manhattan. And we were doing it on Sunday nights. Um, we established it as like free for women, $5 for men. Uh, I believe that's what it was. Um, because, because we wanted people to like not be like, oh, we paid all this money and then we expect to see this kind of show or that kind of show. We really wanted it to be something um, that, uh, you know, we would be like, when you come to Black Lily, you don't know what to expect. You know, expect the unexpected, yeah. And so we got together in a van for that very first show. And in that van was where we met for the first time, who one of the people that became uh, a Black Lily mainstay, Miss Jaguar Wright. And that's when we met her on that van ride to that very first show. Yes, in New York. And so we did that every Sunday uh, for about a year. 
um, and Kindred. I think they were on that first show. But, you know, we had uh, musicians that we brought up from Philly, and one of those musicians was Scott Storch, who we knew from working with The Roots. We did that for a year, and part of the feature was that, you know, we do, we each would develop our own little individual sets, and then at the end, we opened it up for the open mic, and people really loved that, you know, because we gave people a chance to just get on there and do their thing, you know, you never knew what kind of crazy, you know, it could be somebody amazing, or it can be somebody like, uh, you know, but that was the fun of it, right? And so it gained popularity, and next thing you know, each Sunday was a little bit more full than the last. And it was just a great place to do it from because New York, it's like an international stage. You know, it's not just like being in the States. You know, you have all these crowds and people mm-hmm. from different places. And then eventually when we found the proper venue in Philly, which was the, the five spot, then that is the when we spot. began mm-hmm. uh, doing it in the year 2000 at the five spot there. And um, yeah, it was just great. I mean, the five spot, it was this very, very intimate venue very intimate i mean people were like right here in front of your face well the it stage was, was like this and people this were right here you know so <laughs> it proved to be a master training ground of like if you could keep your composure if you could you know do your thing with somebody staring at you right here you know then you know that you can perform borderline anywhere and so that's really what it became a training ground for all of us who were involved you know to just develop our craft and really Mm -hmm. and also be able to promote ourselves at the time because you know it was this little known and then in the midst of that that's when you started hearing more about like neo soul and this person and that person being added to it and and once it gained popularity and like sort of word of mouth spread then different people started coming through on any given night you don't know who might be in the audience so then we had people like um well you know flow tree they must have heard about it when they were in yeah they had a in London and so when they came over here they they definitely wanted to get up on the Black Lily stage and did um and actually became part of our like you know core crew of people who will perform every Mm -hmm. week for a minute Tracy and Mercedes were intentional about creating a space for women where they could present full thoughts and not worry about being passed over on the sign-up sheet or simply be relegated to singing the hooks. One of the people that would become a staple of Black Lily is Lady Alma, an immensely gifted singer, songwriter, and performer from Philadelphia. She's a living legend in the city and representative of the rich legacy of artists that would pass through the Black Lily. Here's Lady Alma. My name is Alma Horton, but I'm also known on the stage as Lady Alma. I'm a singer, songwriter, producer, actress, friend, daughter, cousin, you know, musician. Yeah. So how I started out in general in music, you know, most like most black people, I was in the church. And at a young age, I would say as young as three years old, I was singing. I was singing in the gospel choir. And actually, I was singing in the choir with my mother. So that'll tell you right off the bat, it was an adult choir. But I was the only child in this group. But at three, I knew that music was definitely something that I wanted to get into because I always, each year of my life, all the way up to where I am now, I was doing something that incorporated music, either, you know, going to school for it, because I went to GAMP, Gerard Academic Music Program, and I graduated from there. and, And I also... I went to Settlement Music School on 4th and Queen, and I had private teachers as well. So I had been doing this thing for a very long time at a very young age, 
and it just stayed with me. It saved my life, really. I want to say that, you know, some people might use it as a cliche, but music actually saved my life. It did. Yeah. The time of the Silk City era and performing, it was like fire. It was at its height. This was just before the Lily. This was like the precursor to the Lily. You understand? This is why the Lily is where it was because of Monday nights at Silk City on Fifth and Spring Garden. King Britt and Dazia Blakely were two DJs that used to have a night called Back to Basics. And they had a band was James Poiser, Tim Motzer, Jeff Bradshaw, Dre and Vidal, and um, Jafar Barron, trumpet player. And what they would do is King and Daz would spin a little and then the band would come on and they would, they had their grooves and stuff, but they would vibe. And sometimes they would have people come up on the stage and vibe with them. And then they'd go back to spinning. So then that era kind of went away because we, Silk 130, which was James Poiser, Jeff Bradshaw, John Latham, Chuck Treese, myself, Diva Blue, Ursula Rucker, Tanja Dixon. I don't want to leave nobody out. Uh, Ted Thomas. Uh, the MC was Bun, capital A. He's also a rapper known as capital A. Vicky Miles, because she sung The Reasons. And we were out for a while. We did Soul Train. We, you know, we were just like all over the place and we were getting ready to go on our European tour. And then something happened at Sony, which then everybody by that time, everybody in the group, they all started doing, you know, really big things. Like James Poison was doing the Lauren Hill thing. Jeff Bradshaw had branched out and he was working with Jill Scott. Um... We even had Damon Bennett to fill in for James Poiser because James Poiser was just like out there just producing all kinds of stuff with the Angelo and all, you know, all the Soul Aquarian stuff. And then that's when, boom, here comes the Lily. It was the savior for Philly because Silk 130, they all went off to be great. Even King, you know, became a very world-renowned DJ, and he's now a professor at Southern Cal doing his thing, very, you know, proud of him and everything. But that's what happened, and thank God for the lily. Thank God for the lily. Now we can talk about the real deal.
And how I got introduced to Black Lily, I was doing my own thing now. That's where the Lady Alma came in, because I used to work with a partner by the name of Tangent Dixon, which was a part of the Silk 130. And we did the last night of DJ Save My Life remix and, you know, did well with that. But then I went off and started doing Lady Alma. And a lot of stuff was house. And I started working with the house DJs and Broken Beat, like the four heroes, Digo and A Bugs in the Attic and Co-op, all of those cats. And was really doing stuff. I was performing and I had a band, a big band, like almost, I want to say, I had two horns, a bass, a guitar, drums, percussion, keys. And at the time, I had two male background singers and myself, you know, so we were really big. And we were doing stuff outside of Philadelphia, but of course, everybody was, you know, all right, lady doing something. And one day we were rehearsing in Philly at the home of the Roots, big ups to my brothers in music, because they had a spot where everybody could rehearse. And so we were blessed to be able to also use the space. And then that's when we, you know, I went a couple of times and just got open. I, you know, that's how I was introduced. We went, you know, my manager, Tony, you know, he knew people that was a part of the Lily anyway. And he was like, you need to see this. This is something you need to see. And I went for a few times and I just was like, yo, but let me backtrack because I did not have that big band at the time. I got ahead of myself. Sorry. I did not have that big band at the time. When I first started going to see them, I was like, I got to be a part of that. And I think I did something to a track. And that's when they was like, oh, yeah, she needs to be a part of this, but not to the track. We got to see her rock because everybody else was rocking live. I was like, it ain't fair that, you know, she does well with this track. She's got to rock live like everybody else. And that's how that started. I was rocking with... Kevin Arthur on bass, uh, on drums, Frankie Knuckles, and this guy named Azel Dixon. He was playing keys. And I did good. And so they was like, okay, Al, all right, well, you can come up to New York with us. And that's when I got my feet wet at the wetlands. Oh, the feeling of having people who don't know you, don't really know your music, but really appreciate what is going on, accept you. That that is a feeling that cannot even be bought or paid for. That was then for me, I was super open because it gave me that feeling again from what I had when I was rocking with Silk 130. That rocking to the band thing and oh my God. It's a, a, a great feeling to be, you know, asked and to know that this platform really was supposed to be for the females, which is why they called it the Black Rose. That was dope. Nobody was doing anything for the females and nothing. You know, not on, not in that, you know, uh, scale, not, not like that. Mm -mm. And so that was another thing that just was a, 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 a wonderful thing to have, you know, and these people are repping Philly, you know, shout out to, you know, and rest in peace to Rich Nichols and shout out to Mercedes and them for having this idea you know, the Jazzy Fat Nasties, putting this thing together, it, it was a beautiful thing. Having the right host, River, she made it. She made the, she made the lily. She made it. She, she brought that 
created that atmosphere. She made you want to know who was coming next on the stage. Just everything about that, I, I loved it. Even the rawness of the mics and, and stuff. You, you had, it taught you how to hone your craft. It, it was a very good teaching tool. In addition to being a classically trained vocalist and having a foundation in the church, Lady Alma was also involved with the New Freedom Theater, Pennsylvania's oldest African-American theater, which is dedicated to black youth, as well as preserving and advancing performance arts. And it shows in Lady Alma's live performances. Her shows are dynamic and filled with passion, dancing, and energy, a spirituality that is of the blues and gospel and other black music traditions. In particular, in Lady Alma's case, she is one of the torchbearers of house music, a style of music that emerged in the 1980s led by DJs like Frankie Knuckles, Mr. Fingers, Larry Levin, and countless others. House music was birthed out of underground scenes in black and queer communities in Chicago and New York. It's where folks would leave it all on the dance floor. It's an expressive and upbeat music and a sonic extension of a range of traditions, disco, funk, rhythm and blues, and the predecessor to electronic dance musics. And as a performer, Lady Armour brought the spirit and passion of house music to Black Lily in a way that only she could. I had a love for house like in, the co in my college days. You know, I didn't graduate, but I had a love for house then, and it kind of went away for a minute. And then when I started going out to Silk City, you know, they had a night on Saturday, King had a night on Saturdays where they spun house, brought me back to the love. It reminded me a lot though, too, of gospel music, which was like, wow. You can incorporate those two. I could play this music for my mom and my aunts and stuff because they was in the church and ministers and stuff of like that. But I could sing stuff and they'd hear this beat and that's all they would have, you know, it's a way of how you can make a person sometimes not even hear the lyrics, but just hear the beat. Manipulation through, through tones and, and sound. So I could get away with, you know, singing house. Plus, I loved it. And I was getting to hear it more here in our city. Because a lot of people, they, you know, would say, oh, I never hear no house music being played in Philly. House music was being played in Philly in the early, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yes, it was. It was DJs rocking it. King Britt, Rich, Medina, Lee Jones, like T. Alfred. They was rocking house in Philadelphia early. So you got to feel way, you know, now we got a whole lot more now, but I'm talking about back then, it really was. And you didn't have to dig or search. If you just knew where the parties was about it, then you knew, you knew. And to hear it, to get to hear it on Saturdays, get to hear it sometime on Mondays, after all the good stuff, then it was another club, which was called the Black Banana. It's closed, it's a furniture store. I don't even think it's a furniture store no more. It's something else now on 2nd Street, 2nd and Arch, I think. They used to have an after hours that played house. So it's always been my love for it. And then when I started rocking with King, King is the reason why I'm here with House Now and why I know some heavy hitters in House. It was because my brother in music came. You know, he knew a lot of these cats because he was a house DJ who spun it. You know, he, I would like, you know, one of my first gigs by myself on a nice big level was when I did win a music conference down in Miami. And so that's where you had the Louis Vegas and Masters at Works and 
you know, all these big, if you're in the house, these are the big time, the Danny Terrios and all these cats that was big time DJs, but also producers. Because that's also another thing that happened when the big band thing phased, started phasing, and people was not paying out that money for the bands. And then you notice even the R&B and the neo-soul artists started singing the tracks and whatnot. Some of these DJs was like, okay, I see they're evolving, and we're going to have to evolve. We can't just be DJs and spend just this. And they started, you know, becoming producers and producing what they wouldn't mind spending. And then having first a community, then a collective, then it went outside of the U.S. because it was bigger in Europe and in Japan and, you know, places like that, Brazil, where you would never think house music is huge. It's huge, you know, it's huge huge over in Africa, way before all the African sound of house is, is infiltrating here in the States now. But they was digging on our house that we, you know, folks wasn't even appreciating, which is why these DJs was able to start to travel here, there, and everywhere. Get paid a nice little piece of money, even, you know, produce some stuff wherever they at. It's because it became in demand on that scale. Now, if you notice, house is moving over. It's slowly moving over. But I have always had a love for house. It's not anything new. I've been doing it a long time. And I, you know, it's my lane. You know, and I think that's the reason why, you know, the creators of the Black Lily accepted me because I wasn't trying to be like nobody else. I wasn't trying to sound like nobody else. I was trying to do what I do and introduce it to a whole new audience and have it be accepted. And successfully and humbly, I am so grateful that that happened. You know, they accepted me as a Lily. I'm forever grateful. You know, I learned a lot during that period. It helps me to do what I do today. It really does. We're all coming into our own as artists at the same time. So we were part of this perfect storm of a lot of people in the same zone actually trying to get over the hump and we just all happen to be on that wave together you know what I mean it's, it's, it's kind of um, interesting because people always talk about recreating Black Lily um, and Black Lily in its in its um, purest form was just a, a, a creative space that was was um, opened up for people to actually share and so um, in what made that magic worked so much was that all of us were at the beginning of our careers, like uh, Kindred, Jill Scott, um, uh, you know, Music Soul Child. Even though it was a women's based thing, we would have like Bilal would be coming up on stage and performing, and Most Deaf would hit the stage and perform. The Roots would come through whenever they felt they were in town and, and wanted to wanted to contribute. So it was like this collective of everybody who was already trying to do their thing, sharing. And not, you know, and so when people talk to, you know, we've been approached several times about recreating Black Lily and it's like, it's not um, something you can create based on a money model. Like you can't think this is going to be a show I'm going to put on, we're going to make money, we're going to be a pair of band members and da da da. Some nights, you know, we were able to like, and it would be, you know, nominal, like we'd be able to give, you know, a couple hundred dollars here to this band. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it wasn't anything you can live off of. Um, so, and I think that that's one of the, the traps people fall into when they try to recreate something like Black Lily because it really was just an act of, of artistic love on all the participants' part, the way I see it. You know, it was just everybody just coming together and jamming, you know? The Jazzy Fat Nasties helped forge a space for women and independent artists. Black Lily was raw, without pretension or frills. It was collective and communal. 
In hindsight, we could see the flowers that would come from the seeds they planted. Lady Alma, Jasmine Sullivan, Jill Scott, Jaguar Wright, Kendra the Family Soul, Floetry, Aries, Ursula Rucker, and so many others. Jazzy Fat Nasties held the door open so that others could walk through. In the next episode. So Amir and Tariq, we all kind of have the same tone. They kind of gave me the freedom because they knew that I spoke the same language and that anything I said would be something that they would approve of, even if I had to kind of explain to them, like, this is why we're doing it. We're building a community. Like, once you have people that hold on to you and believe in what you say, if you keep doing that they'll and you let them know you care about them, they'll never let you go. So it was very much them just saying, Angela, do what you do. And I got to make jokes and even talk about them on the front page, like <laughs> make fun of what they were wearing. Common's, uh, what do you call it? His, I call it his Hawaiian dressing days. Cause I, what was, <laughs> and they just trusted me. And I think it helped people feel closer to them because at times they weren't only my friends. I was working with them and you always get frustrated with people you work on and they would allow me to take it out on them. And I think they became less of these big superstars of people and more like, hey, they're my buddies I can pile around with too, to people who were on the board. This has been The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and black music at the turn of the century. To learn more about this episode, you can visit 808sandjazzbreaks.com. This podcast was written, produced, and edited by me, Stanley Collins. This episode was engineered by Jimmy Goodman of Leopard Studio. Original music by Soul Surplus. And funding for this project was made possible by the Black Music City Grant in Rec Philly. Special thanks to Dee River Parker, Stephanie Renee, Lady Alma, Tracy Moore, and Mercedes Martinez. And thanks to Mike D and Daryl DeBress for granting access to their audio archive. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next episode.